Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started tonight. And we're in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. So we'll read the chapter and then we'll have our Bible study. Jonah 3, verse 1, says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You, Lord, tonight asking that, Lord, the same uh, sensitive and uh, tender heart that You granted to uh, the men of Nineveh and to the king, Lord, to respond so readily uh, to the preaching of Your Word, Lord, to humble themselves and to be so contrite before You, uh, Lord, to seek You through prayer and fasting, Lord, we pray that that same uh, spirit and that same attitude might be found uh, in your people tonight. Lord, that we also would be attentive to your word. Lord, that we would uh, believe it. Lord, that we would obey it. Lord, that we would be humbled. Lord, at the prospect of our own sin. Lord, that we might repent of our sin. Um, And Lord, that we might not walk in it any longer. Lord, we pray that you might grant to us Lord, always a repenting heart. Uh, Lord, one that uh, is not hardened against sin, but rather, Lord, one that is very sensitive to it and, Lord, that quickly turns. So, Lord, bless us tonight with such a a spirit, Lord, for we know that you dwell in a high and a holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly of spirit. So, Lord, may that be true of us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, <clears throat> Jonah chapter 3 picks up uh, where Jonah chapter 2 ended, uh, which is Jonah being vomited out of the fish, and now this call being issued again to Jonah, the call that he originally received in chapter 1. Now God reissues this call, uh, and Jonah uh, obeys, and then it uh, unfolds for us what happens in Nineveh as Jonah goes and preaches uh, the word of God to them, declares to them the judgment that is coming upon them. And here in this chapter, you really see that Jonah is, uh, you know, it's very rare in life. There are times where perhaps we may get a second chance to go and make something right that we uh, 
really messed up the first time. And certainly that is what happened with Jonah. He made a real mess of, of it in chapter 1 through his disobedience to God and his running and fleeing from the presence of the Lord, his refusal to go and to fulfill the call that God gave to him. And yet here, Jonah is granted uh, another opportunity to do what God has called him to do. And in this time, uh, we see that he is uh, faithful in part, right? Faithful in part. He certainly goes in and preaches the word that God has given to him. But then in chapter 4, we see that there are still issues within Jonah in terms of his own attitude and his uh, perceptions of God and of men and of repentance and the graciousness of God that still need to be dealt with. And certainly the Lord knows how to do such things. So Jonah chapter 3, we'll begin here in verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Here, we remember in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amiti, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here, God's kindness is manifested in this person of Jonah because uh, Jonah could be at this point a dead, rotting corpse on the bottom of the ocean floor. And yet instead, he has lived through this very... Uh, uh, unbelievable ordeal of being in the storm, being cast into the sea, being swallowed by this great fish, and then being vomited up on the other side of that, and now he is alive. And so here, God is being kind to him, and he is called again to go as a prophet and to proclaim the word of the Lord, right? God does not just uh, restore him back to some inferior status, he is still being called as a prophet of God. He still has this rank in this office that is granted to him, even though up to this point he has been unfaithful to God. So God doesn't resort him back to some inferior status, but continues to allow him to possess this rank and this office that was very peculiar. There's a very few, a select few men throughout the history of Israel who ever occupied the office of prophet. And there's even fewer whose prophecy or whose life was inscripturated and deposited in the Word of God. And Jonah is one of those men, right? Jonah is one of those men, even though he had been unfaithful to God. And so this is the kindness of the Lord, that God does not repay us according to our own deeds. We know in Amos, Amos chapter 3, verse 7, Amos 3, 7, says, Surely the Lord does nothing unless He reveals His secret counsel to His servants, the prophets. Right? God reveals His secret counsel to His servants, the prophets. And this is certainly true in the case of Jonah. Though Jonah was unfaithful to God, God still was treating him in a way that he did not deserve, showing God's grace and His mercy and His kindness to him. And this is a reminder to us as well that God does not treat us according to our sins and according to our iniquities. And all of this is because of what Christ has done for us. Just as we dealt with this past Sunday, that He is the guarantee of a better covenant. He is our surety that our standing and our approval before God is based upon the person and work of Christ. What He has done for us gives us our standing before God. And this is why his compassion never fails, but it is new every morning. God is faithful to His people, even though 
his people can be unfaithful to him. Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. In verse 22 and 23. Says, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is faithful. He is always faithful. His compassion, his loving kindness never fails. Even also in Ezra chapter 9, there Ezra, though God did chastise his people, and though there was a great ordeal that they had to suffer through, yet Ezra recognizes that it was less than what they deserved. Ezra 9.13 Ezra 9.13 says, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since our God has required us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us an escaped remnant as this. Right? God requited us less than our iniquities deserve. Yes, there was punishment. Yes, there was judgment that came upon us. But what did Israel deserve because of their sin? They deserve to go the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. They deserve to go the way ultimately of Nineveh and Babylon and of Egypt and all these other nations that were wiped off the face of the earth. And yet God restored His people because He was faithful to His covenant, faithful to His promises. And this is the way that God is with Jonah as well. So in Jonah we see this example, a display of the love and the kindness of God. And this is what God does for us each and every day. Right? Because each and every day we have our daily sins against God. Who among us can say that we have loved God perfectly with all of our heart, soul, might, and strength and loved our neighbor as ourselves perfectly, right? In both our words, in our deeds, in our thoughts, in our hearts, in, in everything that we do. Do we do that all day, every day? Has any of us ever perfectly loved God with all of our heart, soul, might, and strength any day of our life? It's impossible for us to do so. And yet, this is what God requires. This is what the law sets out before us, and yet God still treats us with kindness, with mercy, with compassion. And this is because we have this standing before God based upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But also, if God is so compassionate toward us, then we ought to also be compassionate toward one another. And we should not treat each other. We should be willing and ready to forgive our brother and not hold their offenses against them as we are so often prone to do. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. 1 John 4, 10 <clears throat> says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God loved us by sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins. And if God has loved us this way, by forgiving us of our sins, then we ought to love one another as well. We should forgive our brother from the heart and not treat each other according to our sins and according to the offenses we commit against each other. We should not hold grudges and bear grudges against one another, but instead should be tender and kind and compassionate and forgiving just as the Lord was with Jonah. We must have uh, patience with our brother. And typically, what we want is patience for ourselves, and then we want to be very exacting with other people. But with a godly man, it's usually the opposite. With a godly man, he is much more exacting and severe upon himself and his own sins, and much more patient and kind and tender toward the sins 
of others. And this is the attitude of humility and the way that we should behave toward one another. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim against it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Here we see a slight alteration in what was originally stated in chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now he tells him, Go to the city and proclaim the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Now the proclamation is the same. It's to preach against their sins and to pronounce the judgment of God that is going to come upon them. But here the focus is on the prophet, whereas in chapter 1 the focus is on the city and upon the people. God's focus is now on Jonah and him as a prophet being faithful to discharge his duty and to tell the people of Nineveh everything that God tells him to tell them. And this is the way we must be as well, right? We must speak whatever the Word of God says. In Matthew chapter 10, Matthew 10, 18 to 20, Matthew 10, 18 to 20, says, And you will leave me brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are going to say. For it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of our Father who speaks in you. There, again, he's telling them not to worry about what they're going to say, because the Spirit would be within them, and the Spirit would teach them and tell them what it is that they are supposed to speak. Say exactly what I tell you to say. And this is the case here with Jonah as well. And this remains the case for us in the present day too. We need to speak and to tell others what the Word of God says. And then in our own life, we need to read the Bible and believe and obey whatever the Word of God tells us to do. Right? And that is the simplicity of the Christian life. Right? It, what we are required is actually very simple and easy. Whatever God commands, then that is what we should do. Now, it is the execution of it that is more difficult, right? And that is because of the prevalence of the flesh. The flesh is waging war against these things. So knowing what we ought to do is very simple and plain. We ought to do just as Jonah is to do with the people. Tell them whatever I tell you to say to them. Well, we ought to believe whatever God tells us in the Word, and we ought to obey whatever God commands in His Word. That is the simple, plain definition of the Christian life. Yet again, it is much more difficult to follow because of the flesh and this war that is waging between the flesh and the spirit, the flesh trying to keep us from doing what we want to do, doing the will of God. The same is true for church life as well. What should the church do? Well, we should do whatever the Word of God tells us to do, right? This is how we ought to conduct ourselves, how we ought to formulate ourselves. So this is... Um, what the Word of God says. Chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Here, this is uh, much better. This is a great improvement. This is the process of sanctification, right? Before, he did not do that. He fled from the presence of the Lord. Now, he goes and he obeys the word of the Lord, and he does what God told him to do. He arose and went to Nineveh. Progressive sanctification. That's what we believe. That's what we teach. Not instantaneous sanctification. Progressive sanctification. And what happened in between chapter 1 and chapter 3? 
this severe trial that God chastised Jonah with. And this chastisement was a benefit to him because it purified him, it purged him from this sin, it sanctified him, and now he's doing what it is that he ought to do. He went because God told him to go. And this is the way that we ought to be. And we see this pattern in others as well. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. We ought to desire and what we should strive for is immediate compliance. In Jonah's case, it was delayed. It was delayed compliance to the Word of God. Now, later compliance is better than no compliance, okay? But what's even better than that is immediate compliance. That's what we should strive for each and every day. Genesis 12, 1. Now, the Lord said to, Abr to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord has spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So there God called Abram to go, and Abram went forth, just as the Lord had spoken to him. He obeyed the word of God. Also, Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, though we don't know a lot about Joseph, the father, the earthly adopted father of Christ, but what we do know is that he was very sensitive to the Word of God, and whatever God told him to do, that's what he did. Chapter 1, 24 and 25. Chapter 1, 24 and 25. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Chapter 2, 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then chapter 2, 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Every time God issued a command through the angel to Joseph, Immediately, Joseph did exactly what the Lord told him to do. He obeyed the word of God. Ultimately, this is what Jonah does as well. Now, again, it took some time for him to get there, but here he is, and he is obeying God. He went to the city just as the Lord commanded him, and in this way, there is progress. There is progress, you know, in the life of Jonah, though it may be through much difficulty. It may be uh, baby steps or two steps forward and one step back. But this is the way it often is in the Christian life, and this is our own experience as well, right? We have successes, we have victories, and then we have our failures. And yet, we are always moving onward and upward toward the kingdom of God. Though it may be slow, though it may have our stumblings and our failings, just as we read a few weeks ago in Proverbs that the righteous man, he stumbles uh, seven times, but he always gets back up. And this is the case with Jonah. He stumbled, he fell, 
But now he has risen again and he is going and obeying the word of God. Verse 3b says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Here, a description of the city. It is an exceedingly great city. Exceedingly great in a number of ways. One, it is a very large city, right? A three days journey in walk. This is what it, the immediate context is. So it is a very large city in terms of the size of it. Also, a city that large is, would have been very populous. There's a lot of people that would have lived there. It's also an exceedingly great city in terms of uh, politics, in terms of the importance in the world at this time. It is a great city. It's a center, a hub of, of commerce, uh, of uh, culture, uh, of politics, right? There's a lot of uh, power that is concentrated here in this city. And so in all of these ways, it is an exceedingly great city. But primarily, I think it is great in that there are many, many souls there, many, many people there who do not know their right hand from their left hand and who are under the wrath of God because of their many sins that they've committed against God. Here, it's said to be a three-day journey to walk through the city, a three-day journey to walk through it. Verse 4, So Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and cried out and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah goes and begins this proclamation, and his proclamation is a very simple, short, straightforward message. Forty days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Now this overthrown is the same word, the same term that's used in Genesis 18 and 19 to refer to Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew those cities. It refers to complete destruction. It is God's judgment and God's destruction. And Jonah is announcing to them that if they do not repent of their sins in 40 days, there is going to be destruction that's going to come upon their city. This is what he is proclaiming to them. And here we have a summary of his message, right? The summary of his message is 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And I think this would be similar to like in Mark chapter 1, whenever Jesus appears and begins to preach the gospel, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There you have a short summary of the message of Christ. If it could be summarized or crystallized into a very short, brief statement, this is generally speaking what Jesus was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, of course, there's more. He was saying more than just that, right? And we have other sermons uh, from the life of Christ where he is expounding this, this concept and this central truth that he is proclaiming, such as the Sermon on the Mount, which is, Matthew 5 through 7, right? Uh, 5, 6, and 7, three chapters. And it's more than just repent, those, those words. Uh, and, and it's a summary of what Jesus was saying. And I think this would be similar in the case of Jonah. He's saying more than simply in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. But this is a summation of what it is that he is pronouncing there upon the city. He's preaching the judgment of God coming upon them because of their sin, right? And this is what they need to hear. Now, two things with this. One, this is not an idle or an empty threat, right? Because God does not make idle, empty right. threats. This is something that God will fulfill and that God will come through on if they do not repent. God hates sin. And if men will not repent, then they will be destroyed. He will uh, consume all of his adversaries. So a message of judgment and a message of condemnation, when God pronounces these things in his word, he's not making empty idle threats. 
This is not like the parents who are telling their bratty kid that they're going to spank them when they get home, but you know full well they're never going to do it, right? Because if they spanked them when they got home, guess what? They wouldn't be so bratty, right, over here at Walmart. So they make these empty threats, and yet they never come through on them, and the children know that they're not going to come through on them. But God is not such a God. God doesn't do these kinds of things to try to trick people into something that He's really never going to do. If men will not repent, what will God do to them? He will destroy them. He will completely consume them. They will be overthrown, and they will die in their sins. Psalm 7. Psalm 7, 11 to 13. Psalm 7, 11 to 13 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. If man will not repent... God will destroy him. He will consume him in his sin. And this is the uh, primary essential issue that we must address concerning our own life. How will we escape the wrath to come? How will we avoid being consumed by the fury and wrath of God? Right? This is what we must address and this is what we must seek. What is the way in which a man can escape this horrible outcome? And it is only through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when the warning of coming judgment is issued to sinful men, it is a very real warning. It is one that ultimately God will fulfill if they do not repent. So this is something people need to know, right? They need to know that this is going to happen in the life to come if they do not repent. Secondly, another thing in terms of this message, it's very plain, it's very simple, it is a very clear message. Many people fear uh, speaking, they fear talking to their neighbors, to their friends, to their loved ones, because they feel like they're inadequate, that they don't know enough in order to share something with them of substance that will be a benefit and a value to them. But here, Jonah's message is very simple, right? It's not very complex. And yet, it is of great value to the people of the city. So we don't have to have a PhD or a Bible degree or a, a, a knowledge of, the, of Scripture that is beyond everyone else before we can open our mouths and speak a good word to our friends and our loved ones and even strangers that we may meet. All we need to do is speak something that is truthful to them. Whatever the Word of God says, speak some word of truth to them, and it is going to be a benefit and a value to them. Whether or not we are an um, eloquent speaker or a gifted communicator, Right? That, that doesn't matter. All that matters is if we speak what is true. Now, certainly we should desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's good for us to study. It's good for us to have a, a greater grasp on doctrine and theology and who God is and be able to explain deeper concepts in a more thorough way, in a more clear way, that certainly should be something that we all are striving for. However, we shouldn't wait and say, well, I have to get to a certain level before I can be of any value or benefit to my Christian brothers or to those who are still dead in their sins. We can simply speak a very plain, simple message, just as Jonah did. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And it is the simplicity of the gospel right, that is often highlighted 
in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he makes that point that he did not come with persuasive speech and with worldly wisdom, but he came in simplicity, proclaiming the Word of God with weakness, with fear, with much trembling. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So there, he came not with superiority of speech or wisdom, but he came proclaiming a very simple, clear message from God. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now we know that the Apostle Paul was very adept at the Scripture. He knew theology. He knew his doctrine. He unfolds for us in some of the uh, books of the Bible that we have. Uh, great theological truths that you could write book after book after book and preach sermon after sermon after sermon on. And yet, he came in this very simple, clear way whenever he was preaching the gospel. Verse 5. <clears throat> then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Here, when the message goes out, the people of Nineveh believed in God. They received this message not as a word from man, but they received it as it truly was, as a word from God. Though Jonah is the prophet and they're hearing it through a human agent, through a human messenger, they understand that this word that they are receiving is not a word that originated in Jonah, and it's not a word that originated in Israel. It is a word that has come down to them from God, and they believe in God, and they believe what God says concerning Himself, concerning sin, and what He's going to do to this city if they do not repent. And this is the same as 1 Thessalonians 2.13. There, the apostle commends the Thessalonians because when he came and when he preached the word of God to them, they received it, not as a word from man, but as it truly is, a word from God. There it says, For this reason we also constantly thank God, for when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is the way they received it. Now we have to ask, how? How did this come about? Right? How is it that they believed God? When there are so many others who hear the word of God and they don't believe God. We know that God constantly sent His prophets to His own people to Israel and they hardened their hearts. Their foreheads were like bronze and brass. They were a stiff-necked people. They would not listen to the words of the prophet. So how is it that when the prophets go to Israel, so often they are rejected by them, they will not listen, yet here a prophet goes to Nineveh, a bunch of pagans, a bunch of foreigners, and they hear the word, and immediately they believe it. They believe in God. Well, ultimately, this must come from God. God must give this gift. He is the only one who can open the eyes, who can open the ears, and who can turn the heart of men so that men will receive and they will believe the word that has been spoken to them. 
These people are a very wicked people. And yet, they readily repent. The city repents. The city believes the word of the Lord. And this is because the Spirit opens their eyes. God gives to them understanding so that they receive the word that was spoken. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that the things of the Spirit of God, and certainly Jonah's message, the word that he's preaching, we know did not originate in him, but he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this word is a word from the Holy Spirit, and it cannot be believed or received by natural men, only by spiritual men. So there has to be a conversion, a change in the person before they can receive the Word of God. And this takes the miracle of God, the work of regeneration, to be born again before you can enter the kingdom of God, before you can receive God's Word. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Here, those who are taught by the Spirit, this is what we need. Not words of human wisdom, but we must be taught by the Spirit. And in this case, the men of Nineveh were taught by the Spirit. He is the one who gave to them the ability to hear the Word of God and to believe that Word. It comes ultimately from God, and it's based upon His purpose of election. God gives it to one, and He withholds it from another, according to His own will and according to His own desires. Also, we see here that their faith is also manifested in their actions, right? In what they do. Faith and repentance going hand in hand. It says that they believed God, they called a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Here, their repentance is seen, or their faith in God, in this word that he's given, is then accompanied with this repentant, humble attitude, this sorrowful attitude toward their sin. They issue a decree to fast and to put on sackcloth. From the greatest to the least. Even the king uh, joined in in this act of contrition. And even the king issued a decree for the whole city that everyone should do this. And that everyone should earnestly call out to God that God would be gracious and that God would forgive them of their sin. Even their livestock were forced uh, to participate in this. To put on sackcloth and to fast. So that the whole city 
would have been a crying out to God, right? Both the people doing it consciously, then the animals uh, unconsciously, but just making a bunch of noise, you know, because they're all hungry. But it would have been wailing and weeping and crying out to God because of their sin. This sackcloth and ashes, doing this to the animals, Though animals are not rational creatures, yes, I know many of you may think your animals are rational creatures, but they're not, and they're, they don't have a soul, and they're not spiritual beings in that way. Yet, um, it is a way of showing outwardly what is taking place in the hearts of the people. Their contrition, their humility, the sorrow that they have over their sin, and they're calling out to God for forgiveness, right? He says, let everyone turn from his wicked ways and his violence, the violence in his hands. This is what the king is saying. So it's not just a show, but he's actually calling them to turn from their wicked ways and to turn from the violence that is in their hands. Now, one other point that we ought to make here. Is it an evil thing that the king issued a decree, a spiritual decree, a decree that people would do something religious in the city and expected them to do that? Or is this seen as a positive in relationship to the king? Well, it's seen as a positive, right? It's not something that he's being criticized for. So it is good when the leaders of the land, when those who have uh, the civil authority, when they are issuing decrees and proclamations and promoting policies that benefit uh, religion, truth, spirituality, godliness, right? That's not an evil thing for the king to issue a proclamation that the whole city would repent, that they would cry out to God, that they would put on sackcloth, that they would humble themselves over their sins. And people might say, well, you can't legislate morality. Well, you can legislate morality. You can uh, change the way that people behave. Now, again, ultimately, a man, a king, cannot convert the people of his, of his kingdom. God has to do that. But he can do everything that he can in within his power, within his authority, to set a standard or to set an example, and you hope that the people follow and use his influence in his position in a beneficial way to the people. It's better than proclaiming a proclamation like Nebuchadnezzar, that everyone would worship his, his statue and worship him. Isn't this far superior than what Nebuchadnezzar did? And so there's nothing wrong with us desiring such leaders that God would grant to us presidents, senators, congressmen, judges, leaders in the land who would uh, be Christians, who would promote uh, Christian morality, who would do things that are beneficial to the Christian church and to the preaching of the gospel so that it would be more readily available, so that it would go forth in the land and people would have greater access to that. That is good and beneficial for the kingdom, better than when they are like our own day promoting things that are contrary to the word of God. So here the king joins in in this and the king issues this decree that everyone would humble themselves in this way. Now verse 9, why? Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Here their hope is that God will pardon them from their sins. They're not demanding that God do this. They know that they can't expect or demand God to do anything. They can't demand it, right? They cannot uh, be presumptuous of these things. But there is the hope that if we will turn from our sins, perhaps God will pardon us. 
perhaps He will forgive us and He will turn away from this destruction and devastation that He has proclaimed against our city. This is what they are doing. So they are desiring for God's forgiveness. Now, a few things here. Notice the eagerness in the people to hear the Word of God. How in Nineveh, they so quickly were sensitive to the Word of God, they obeyed the Word of God, they heard it, and they received it. That in contrast to what we've seen in Jonah. Whereas Jonah uh, heard the Word of the Lord, and he fled from it, right? He ran from it. Yet here, they heard the Word of the Lord, and they quickly complied to it. Another thing that we see here in this passage is the power of God's Word. God's Word is very powerful. God's Word is like a hammer that can shatter rocks to pieces. It is a fire that can consume stubble, according to Jeremiah chapter 23, 29. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates, right, deeply into the hearts of man. It separates it. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And this is what we see here in the city of Nineveh, the power of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. And there is a genuine uh, revival or reformation that takes place in the city of Nineveh. It is repentance, and this repentance is not the work of man. It is a work that comes from God. It is based upon the power of God's Word and the power of God's Spirit. Also here in this part, we see that their faith was evidenced by their repentance. Right? It is not enough that one believe in Jesus if they continue in their sin. They must repent of their sins. And in the book of Acts and in the Gospels, sometimes the command or what is issued to the people, what God expects of them, is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord. At other times, they tell them to repent. Repent of your sins. Other times, they tell them of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is because they are one and the same. They always go hand in hand. We must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we must repent of our sins all at the same time. When we repent of our sins, we also will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the case here. Their faith is evidenced by their repentance and their repentance is not a sham repentance. It is a genuine repentance, right? It would not be no good for them to fast, put on sackcloth, if all they're doing is making an outward show of these things. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They fasted, they did those kinds of things, but they did it all as a show. Their heart was really far from God, but that's not the case with the men of Nineveh. They are genuine in their repentance. They're genuine. They're doing these outward things as a sign of what is going on within their heart. But what is taking place in their heart is evidenced in that they turned from their evil ways and from the violence of their hands. Had they done all of this but not turned from their wicked ways and continued their violence, then it would just be a big show. It would all be phony and a fraud, and yet theirs is genuine. Their faith is manifested or seen in their works. And that is like it teaches us in James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. It's a dead, worthless faith. And the God who gives true faith also gives true repentance and true good works that come from that. Then verse 10, the result. The outcome of their humility, their contrition, their repentance before God. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. 
here, Nineveh's hope and Jonah's greatest fear, both of them are realized, right? Jonah's greatest fear is that they would repent and receive mercy. And Nineveh's hope is that they would repent and receive mercy. And this is what happens in both cases. He proclaimed this message against Nineveh, and then God relented from the judgment that he said that he would bring upon them. Jeremiah 18, 7 to 10, God reserves this right to be gracious and merciful if he so chooses. And God has promised us in his word that if men will truly repent, then God will be merciful to them. That is a promise that we have from God in the word of God. And it is what encourages us to seek the mercy of God. The assurance that we have from the word that if we seek him, we will find him. Jeremiah 18, verse 7. At one, at one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy. Okay, that's what happened in Jonah chapter 1 and in Jonah chapter 3. He spoke about a nation to uproot it, to pull it down, to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring upon it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build it up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with, with which I had promised to bless it. So here, if God speaks this word about judgment to uproot, to destroy, and the nation takes that message to heart, repents of their sins, then God will relent concerning the calamity He planned to do it. If there is another nation that He has promised to build up, such as the nation of Israel, but then they do evil things, then God can tear them down. And certainly we see both of these truths manifested for us in Scripture. An example of a nation proclaimed to uproot is the city of Nineveh. And instead of doing that, God relented. An example of a nation and people that God said He would build up would certainly be the children of Israel and Jerusalem. And then ultimately God brought them down. He uprooted them because of their sin. Right In the sinful state, right when Nineveh is in this state of sin, of active practicing sin against God, God is responding to them on the basis of their sin. While they are in an unreconciled state, in a sinful state, and that is with wrath, with His anger, with declarations of judgment. But in a repentant state, God responds to them. He responds to their repentance with mercy, with grace, with love, and with favor. Now, when it says that God relents here, it does not mean that the future was unknown to God, that God had no idea what was going to happen with Nineveh. So He's just doing the best that He can. That's the way that we operate in the world. We just do the best that we can with what is before us. We don't know the future. We don't know the outcome. And so we have to change or we have to relent of what we're doing here and there because as things unfold in history for us, then we have to respond with new information as we get it. Is that the case with God? Does God not know beforehand what's going to happen in Nineveh? Of course not. God knows all things. God knows the future. He knows the decisions that people are going to make. Now, there are theologies out there who deny that. Um, open theism is one, which is a, uh, what I would call a consistent 
logical outcome of Arminianism and free will theology is that they come to a point of open theism that the future is open to God, meaning God does not know the future because if God knows the free decisions that His rational creatures are going to make, then that means God is controlling them. Therefore, they deny that God knows the future because they're trying to preserve and protect the free will of man so much. It's not a good theology, right? <laughs> we should certainly reject that. Well, that's not the case here, right? And they use passages like this to defend these notions because here God repents or God relents of something that He had previously declared because He didn't know what was going to happen. Then when they did this, then God repented. Well, that is not the case. God's will is unchangeable. And God's unchangeable will, His decree that was issued before the world began, was that Nineveh would be told of their sins and the impending judgment upon them, and that this would be the means used by God to bring about their repentance, and in the end, the wrath that was told to them and threatened would ultimately be averted. This was the means ordained by God to accomplish what He was going to do from the very beginning. All the way in chapter 1, even before chapter 1, before the world was created, God's will was to forgive the men of Nineveh. But what was the means, what was the tool that God used to produce His unchangeable will? It was the threat of the coming judgment. That is what God used to bring about their repentance and then to give to them the mercy that He desired to give. It was not a change of the mind of God or of the will of God, but it was a change in His outward uh, dispensation toward men. The way that He was relating and treating men in one state, and then when the men change, then God changes what He's going to do to them, or He relents according to His own counsel and His own plan. So this is the way that we should understand what is taking place in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Now, one final thing to say here is that we cannot demand and we cannot force that God would be merciful to sinners. Right. However... God has promised us in His Word that if we will repent, God will forgive us. That He will be merciful to sinners if we will repent. And so we can say with confidence, and we can declare both to men and to ourselves, that if a man repents, God will be merciful to him. Show me one example in the Bible of a man who truly repented of his sin and did not receive the mercy of God. There's no example at all in the Bible. And this is because this is who God is. This is what God delights in doing. He delights in showing mercy to undeserving sinners. And He has promised to do so on the basis of His Son, Jesus Christ. And if a man will believe in Christ and repent of their sins, all of their sins will be washed away. And they will have the love, the favor, and the forgiveness of God. So we can declare that to people. Uh, that God is a merciful God and that God will forgive them if they will repent of their sins. Okay, we'll stop there tonight. And then next week we'll finish out um, the book of Jonah.